At Heroku in particular, what we were trying to do was simplify something that was complex. We wanted it to be one step, or possibly zero steps. What you can expect from a company is its brand. Some people think of quality as an average. I think of quality as the weakest link. The lowest quality thing in the system is the quality of the system. Design and quality result from a cohesive understanding of the whole product. If you want something, you have to pay for it with these trade-offs. The screwdriver in a Swiss Army knife is kind of a terrible screwdriver. If you're not super pained by the things on the we're not doing it list, then you're not recognizing your trade-offs. Hi, I'm Fred Steven Smith, CEO of Rainforest QA, and you're listening to my podcast, Zero to One. On this show, we'll explore the often overlooked tools and techniques that the best founders use to win. Zero to One is brought to you by Heavybit, a nine-month program for developer-facing startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm talking to my friend James Lindenbaum. He was one of the co-founders and CEO of Heroku. And we get into a bunch of pretty interesting stuff around design thinking today, um, specifically how to keep a super high quality bar in everything you do and the trade-offs and frameworks that you have to put in place to be able to realize that. Uh, hello, podcast listeners. Today, I'm joined with my friend, James Lindenbaum. Uh, James is the founder of Heavybit, which is like the thing that does this podcast. Great description of Heavybit. And also was the one of the founders and CEO of Heroku right up until five minutes before it got sold to Salesforce, <laughs> as he just said. Um, so hello, James. Hello. So we had a little chit-chat before and we kind of think we have some some ideas of what we want to talk about here. You said that one of the real kind of obsessions for you so far, professionally speaking, has been quality. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean quality assurance like Rainforest QA could help you with? Or are you talking quality in very broad terms? Like what does that mean for you? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess in the broadest term, uh, quality uh, in terms of the, the the quality of what you produce, the quality of your work, right? So not not so specific to QA. Um, <laughs> QA is certainly a way to achieve some parts of that, but uh, I think that's sort of one of those things that's sort of personal. Like, what does quality mean to you, right? Yeah. I, I'm a very design uh, minded person, craft minded person, and so to me, quality has a lot to do with with those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, the question is always how much is enough, right? Like that's always the problem, and 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 how do you define quality, right? That's always a problem too. It's very hard to strive for quality, and when you do, you often end up in this situation where somebody's saying you're pushing somebody saying we need more quality, and they're saying what does that mean? Right. And sometimes it's it's definable, but sometimes it's sort of ineffable. It's sort of like one of those things that you can feel. You know, it's kind of like that old uh, that old Supreme Court uh, quote, uh, you know, where they asked they were asked to define pornography, right? And it's like <laughs> I can't define it, but I know it when I see it, right? Right. right. And there, there's something certainly intuitive about that. And and so are we thinking in terms of you know the the finish on an office furnishing, for example, or are we talking about you know how a product? Looks and feels, you know how. Like, what what are the kind of tangible examples that come to mind when you think about this? Well, okay, so I mean, just to get a little bit more specific, a classic example is Apple products, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we can have a debate about today versus yesterday, but let's say ten years ago, no question, Apple products were just of a of a caliber of a quality that were were above and beyond anything else. 
around. And and it wasn't just one particular thing; it was everything, right? It was it was the way it looked, it was the way it worked, it was the way it felt. Um, you know, a, a lot of times quality it, it, you can measure quality most easily as uh, sort of the emotions that occur in the people who are exposed to that product, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, some products you just get this sense that a, a tremendous amount of craft and care. You know, went into them, um, and other products you don't, right? I mean, you can imagine a spectrum, right? You can certainly imagine a product where it's clear that a tremendous amount of care went in, every detail was considered, right? Uh, and you can imagine the opposite end of the spectrum. I won't name any uh, name, <laughs> name any names, but you can certainly imagine. Uh, you can think of products where it's just holy shit, like what? You know, who who said this was okay to ship? You yes. know, like what kind of person was okay with with, with putting the name on this? Um, and so, if you imagine that spectrum, it's it's how far. To the to the right, right? How far to the quality end of the spectrum do you want to go? And one of the really tricky things about that, in terms of managing that with a product, is that you know you, you can't sort of just define. Okay, we want eighty percent quality, ninety percent quality, right? You can't really define that at the beginning because it doesn't really mean anything. What really happens is it's an accumulation of decisions along the way, mm-hmm. right? You have all these little decisions constantly, all the time, and it's is this good enough? Is this good enough? Can we can we move on? Do we need to go further? And the problem is that you know you're okay with not you know you want you want you want great um, you want good enough you, you it doesn't have to be perfect but you want it to be pretty close and whatever your bar is let's say it's eighty percent or ninety percent or ninety eight point six percent or whatever the problem is that you don't know how to land there because you don't know how many more of these things are going to come up so you end up really needing to focus on a hundred percent you know especially in the beginning of a project right because you just don't know how many of these how many of these bullets you have to spend and so when you get closer to the end of a product and you really feel like the polish is there you really feel like the the caliber is where you want it to be you can start to let go of a few of those last things mm-hmm. um, but in the beginning you have to be really careful about sticking to your guns so that you don't sort of it's sort of the, the slippery slope to mediocrity right always that you're fighting against so this brings up several questions for me i guess one is you know, what are some examples, if you can share them, of contentious decisions that you made early on, probably in you know the life of Heroku or in the life of Heavybit, where everyone was like, "What the fuck, James? This is bullshit," and you were like, "Quality, quality, quality." You know, the guy. And so, so let's start with that. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you take a random sample of Heroku employees, I, I'm sure you'll have a, a number of. There's no shortage <laughs> of those stories. Um, James is a service. James, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Photos of me standing over people's desks. But you know, the thing is, so at Heroku in particular, what we were trying to do was simplify something that was complex, right? And simplifying things is very, very hard. Right, simplifying things really is a lot harder than making things more complex. And so to simplify something, you have to really, really understand it, and you have to often sort of rearrange the entire solution, rearrange the whole paradigm of what you're doing in order to just remove one part of the complexity. And then you have to do the whole thing again to remove another part, right? And you're trying to go from ten parts to, you know, I wanted to go to from ten parts to one, right? Right. And some people would struggle and struggle for months to go from ten parts to eight and then say, we got to ship this thing. We've spent months on it. It's much better than it was. But to me, it doesn't matter how much time you spent on it. What matters is whether you reach the bar that you're trying to reach. The uh, the, the Heroku uh, command line interface was sort of a classic example of this, where mm-hmm. you know we wanted to have as few 
switches, commands as possible. Right? And we the command line interface for the, the less technical people listening is basically the way for the nerds to interact with services through that strange matrixy looking window of, of, of te- white text on a black background. Of just text, right? It's just text. Yeah. So you know, you think about design, user experience design, uh, developer experience design in the context of just text, right? just a command line interface. Because that's know, still design, isn't it? It's that, still that's design. still the interface that they use to interact with your product. It's very much design. It's just and probably as, the one of the only interfaces for developers that they'll ever want to use. That's right. That's right. Very few developers, especially at that time, used the web interface. They instead used the command line interface. Which and is, so, did you build that first of all at Heroku, or was that something that you guys added on once you had the core functionality? Um, well, that's uh, a complicated story. We basically built them in parallel. Um, there was an earlier version of Heroku that uh, didn't really have that kind of command line access. But then, when we moved on to sort of the second version of Heroku, we we built both in, in parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk more about that if you want, but. But you know the the, the sort of uh, concrete example of this was that you know a, a huge amount of work went into trying to uh, so imagine the, the classic example is is the create command right so this is this is a way to create a new application that lives in the cloud on the web ready to go you know the the, the prior to this tool basically what you had to do was like a hundred steps right. right? And so anything well. that re- re- was was like less than a hundred steps was an improvement, but we wanted it to be like one step or or possibly zero steps, right? <laughs> and um, and when you go to create, so this, this, you have this command line tool where you type Heroku and then something, right? And right. and so Heroku create was the way to create a new application, and then you could just push your code to it and it would be up and running. And the issue is there are a lot of things that we need to know at the time that you create the application, right? Like. What's the name of the application? Where mm-hmm. does it live? Is mm-hmm. there a domain name? Which type of you know? There's a whole bunch of sort of configuration, and right. the idea was to reduce and remove as much of that as possible. And the, the issue is that it's not very straightforward, right? You, you, you got this, you know. When we first sat down to do it, if you sort of do the naive, what I always call the naive implementation, right? This is the, the first thing that comes to mind when you design a solution to a problem. Um, without having really considered all the details and done that extra work to simplify it, we had like ten sort of switches, ten things: Heroku create, and then like blah 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 blah, ten right. things that you had to specify. Right. And and so then the question was, how do we get rid of these things? And there wasn't a clear answer. Each one was different. You know, one of them we needed to basically rebuild the entire way that our backend worked, right? So that a thing that we previously required you to specify up front, you could specify later. Right, so we had to rework the entire architecture so there could be flexibility later. Solely, really, solely to remove this one flag from the command line, wow. and that met you know a, a lot of resistance in, <laughs> with the engineering team, especially uh, you know there, there's a lot of layers of infrastructure at Heroku, and so as you sort of dive deeper into the stock, you get you go sort of from app developers to sort of platform developers into pretty deep infrastructure and DevOps folks, and. It's a lot of work to re-architect these things, and in particular, they're responsible for reliability and right. stability. And so, changing things, you have to have a really good reason, right? And so, it's, this is a classic example of: is this a good reason? You know, is it is it a good enough reason just to remove one thing from the command line? And my argument was yes, because we have to get it down to none. We literally have to get it down to where you type Heroku create, and that's it. That's it. Yeah. And and so you know there was a huge amount of effort expended on this, and then you have something else, right? Where it's like, okay, well, we need the, 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 another classic example is the naming scheme of these apps. So it turned out that having to name something was actually a huge point of friction, right? You wouldn't think that it is, but it, it turned out in practice it was because 
what we wanted was to get people very, very early, right? They weren't even sure what they were building yet. They just needed to deploy this piece of code that they wrote. Right. So when you stop them, you're like, hey, what's this thing called? Suddenly it's this sort of existential dilemma. Like, yeah, well, yeah. what am I really doing here? What is, the, what is the purpose of this thing? What should it be called? What, how, what does the name collide with this other thing? And so, oh, and then you finally think of something, and it's a global namespace. So somebody else already has that. So, it, you know, that was actually a, a, a meaningful problem. And so then the question was, okay, well, can we have a default? Can we have sensible defaults? That's sort of another, you know, means of of, of reductionism, right? And um, again, naive implementation, right? Think of some other thing you've done. It's probably like so, untitled dash one seven eight three nine four, right? And we just didn't like the feel of that, right? Because you're still trying to create something that has a sense of value, you know, and that you can remember and identify with, has some personality. And um, so, how do you create that without requiring the user to to do anything? So we ended up coming up with this haiku theme, where you know we basically wanted to have, uh, you know, it, it would be like uh, it was a pair of words originally, and so it would be like gentle river, you know, or quiet samurai. Every or Heroku whatever. knows a use it. That's right. Every Heroku user knows it very well. It you know it became sort of this famous thing, and um, you know it was sort of cutesy, and I'm glad we did it. But you know the thing about it is that it was actually hard to do because. Again, the naive implementation of that would have been just like two giant lists of words, right? But then you end up with these combinations that don't make sense, or some of them are kind of not appropriate or like just weird. Um, so uh, I remember we had one that was like golden rain or gold something. Like there were, you know, there were like certain combinations that didn't make sense that yeah. weren't good. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up. This ended up being like a multi-week. Project where it was like we had these different sets of words, and there were algorithms for which ones could go with the others, such that you would always end up with sort of a haiku esque thing that mm-hmm. made sense and didn't have collisions. It was like this whole thing, and it was really ridiculed <laughs> inside the company. It was it was interesting. Half of the company, maybe a third of the company, was really stoked about it, right. and two thirds of the company were like, "What the fuck are these guys doing? Yeah, like, yeah. This thing has been ready to ship. We worked our asses off on it. Like, what are they doing? Because floating over their shoulders the whole time conceptually is just this like." Um, hash, right? Like, Which every other app It's just a fucking name, does. guys. Like, yeah. wrap it up and let's ship this thing. Yeah. But there were there was a set of us who just felt it was really, really important. And it, it wasn't that that by itself was like the critical thing. But you know, again, quality is this thing that, that it's the aggregate, right? And so all the different pieces of this needed to be to a bar where you know. In other words, some people think of quality as an average. I think of quality as the weakest link. Right, so like the the lowest quality thing in the in the system is the quality of the system. Yeah, yeah, and so which is definitely true. Like, look at the look at the old kind of when Microsoft was moving to Metro, and you would spend a very short amount of time in this beautiful Metro tile interface that felt like 2020, and then you get dropped into bloody Windows. Bam! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, just, there it is. There's the start bar. Yeah, thanks. It's just, I mean, you experience this in life, right? Like you set up a fantastic vacation, you're going to Hawaii, the whole thing is dialed in, you get on the plane, you start clearing your head, your inbox is empty, you spend those five hours kind of like drifting into the zone of like vacation and relaxing away from work and hassle, and, and you land and it's all warm and pretty and nice and there's flowers, and then you go to the fucking Hertz rental car place, you know, and it's just like a clusterfuck for like an hour, and you right. can't get out of there, right. and you got to fill out these forms of information sweating. that they already have. You know, yep. Yep. nothing uh, you know aggravates an engineer more than that. Yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm big on arrivals, right? For that same reason, it's like the the weakest link is the problem, um, and so yeah, so we pushed really hard for that, and a lot of people had a problem with it, but you know, I think we were vindicated ultimately, at least in that case, because. You know, it was it, it really affected the feel of the product and the experience that you had, especially as a as a sort of new user. And you know, you also have to remember this is pretty. You know, this this is the way it's done now. But back then, the idea of 
putting design and craft and sort of really caring about user experience for a highly technical, you know, sort of system engineering style product like that was unusual. You know, yeah. that was a big part of why we wanted to do it because we just felt like everything else felt terrible. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know, we can go there are countless examples of that sort of yeah. thing. But um, well I yeah. remember very clearly that shift happening and it definitely felt like it was driven by Apple for me. This notion that you would actually expect good design. Good design wasn't just like this fun thing that just happened, you know, or good quality as maybe you would say it, but like something that was put in place from the very top level of the organization. And I guess that's something that, that's kind of interesting to me, and I would be interested to hear from you to what extent you did that you know, deliberately. How does one create an organization that is able to figure out what that 90 or that 95% bar is beyond the feel? Because at some point, you're not in every single design meeting every single wireframe, every single discussion, lots of people in the organization get to decide what is good enough. Uh, how, do, how do you do that? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, will, I will preface by saying, I don't know, right? I mean, it's really hard, and I will, I will not claim that we have mastered that. It's, it's probably one of the great mysteries uh, for, for me. But I think there are some things we've learned along the way. Uh, personally, I, I do believe that design and, and quality result from uh, a, a sort of cohesive understanding of the whole product, right? So that the philosophy, the principles behind the product, the way it's built, the way it's implemented, the way it looks, the way it feels, all those things are interrelated and are important. And so, and and you know, the products that that we all make are pretty complex. And so, it's 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 difficult for one person to have the entire product in their mind, but it's equally difficult for a set of people who, as a hive mind, kind of have the whole product in their head. It's difficult for them to actually make great design and quality choices because they're really each individual is really only looking at a piece of the puzzle, right? And so, my experience with you know both on the cases of you know good and bad examples, uh, and in my own work, is that uh, it's very difficult to achieve as a team. All the cases of really excellent work of the highest caliber tend to be. A, that tends to be a design czar, right? Now that design czar maybe could be two people or three people, but it's usually one person. And it may be different people over time or different people on different projects, but it's it's usually the, the case is that you really have to have the entire world loaded in your head in order to make the right decisions. Um, and that's more easily done. It's easily it's, it's hard to share brains, right? Right. Um, it's hard to delegate that. I mean, so that was me for a long time. At Heroku, and that was tough because it's really more than a full-time job, and I was had a couple of other full-time jobs uh, <laughs> at Heroku. Yep. Um, and it caused problems. I mean, in the early days, before we'd figured out how to scale that a bit, I was a blocker on a lot of things, right? Because it, it became the you know get James's approval was like one of the steps in the in the pipeline. Eventually, I was able to sort of hand the baton off to other people, uh, Todd, Max, a couple of different people at, at Heroku over the over the years who did a, a great job of sort of. Um, Picking that up and doing it their own way, right? Not 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 my way, but doing it and doing it well. And I, so I think that's part of it is just re- recognizing that you have to have a design czar and you have to you have to give that person enough uh, responsibility and authority. And and that person also has to be the kind of person who can command respect. Because I'm also, I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but I'm I'm of the I'm of the mindset that you know responsibility can't be given, right? It, uh, and uh, as well, responsibility and authority are 
connected, and it can't be given so much as it has to be taken, right? And so you also have to be the kind of person who can command the respect for those decisions. And part of that is that you end up, you, you need to end up being right most of the time, right? And that that's a big thing. And so that's part of it. Another part of it is, it's a cultural thing, right? Another part of it is how do you how do you get your team as it grows to actually have those values, right? To actually care, to say, hey, what this company's about, what this product is about, is this level of quality. So this 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 idea of like let's ship it, that there's this implied objective there that shipping more is better, mm-hmm. right? Shipping it sooner, shipping it faster, shipping more. You know, I, I I'm a bit of a contrarian, I guess, right now in in, in, in Silicon Valley, in that I, I I don't think more is better or faster is better. I'm I am 100% a quality over quantity person, right? And uh, you know, a lot of that is about trade-offs. And so you know, you can't just sit on your high horse and say, hey, it's got to be really high quality, and it's got to be fast, and it's got to be good, and it's got to be cheap. You know, the, the, the classic trade-offs, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, for me. Uh, you have to be realistic, and so for me, what that means is, if you're going to have a really high bar for quality, you have to be willing to give things up in order to get it. And you know, usually, what those things are uh, are timelines, right? You have to be willing <laughs> to basically blow deadlines right. or not be w- be willing, unwilling to commit to them uh, in the first place, which is difficult to manage around. You also have to be willing to be hard on people. Uh, I would say that's the one that will probably, for me, be sort of a lifelong uh, journey to try to continue to be better and better at that. I think fundamentally, it's very frustrating to work on something, to work hard on something, and to you know find out that it's not good enough, right? Regardless of the the means by which you find out, it's just hard. Right. Um, Now, there's the you know there's sort of the canonical like you know Steve Jobs. You know, like bad, bad actor, you know, version right. of that. that this we're fucking sucks. With. Yeah. You suck. You suck. <laughs> yeah. I hate you. Get out. Right. Um, but you know, it's really about the work. It's not about the person, right? It's it's not that you're terrible. It's this thing is a problem, right? Um, and this thing that you made is this terrible. thing that you made <laughs> is terrible. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, and a lot of people are not willing to do that, right? A lot of people are not willing. It's much easier to say. Oh, you spent a hundred hours on this. You know, it's not quite how I would have done it. That's like the passive aggressive way of saying your work is terrible, right? But it's good enough. Fuck it. Like, how how do you avoid that? Especially when you know, and and I'm thinking about this through the through the ears or whatever of of someone who's likely to be listening to this. Probably going to be a founder thinking about starting something, working in the kind of core team of a of a early stage technology company. Like how do you balance that? Like you said, it's a trade-off, right? But how the hell do you balance that when you have, you know, your monthly growth rate that you're thinking about and your investors and all of these other resources in the company are kind of queued up behind? Like how the hell do you do that? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's a dynamic tension, right? So an important part of this is that you have to have sort of this, there's some counterbalancing forces, right? Uh, so I mean at Heroku, the biggest thing was uh, the, 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 there were a number of good counterbalances. But the, the most core was our founder partnership, the three of us. In particular, Adam is is sort of a ruthless pragmatist and wants to ship things. Uh, you know, he has a he has a visceral desire to ship things and get them off of his books mm-hmm. and mark them as done. His, that his his visceral desire for that is as strong as my visceral you know satisfaction or sense of betrayal if, <laughs> around quality, right? right? Right. And so 
if you can if you can have two people who counterbalance each other like that and can find a way to, for that to be a productive tension rather than just a destructive tension, you know, that was a really big part of of what what the magic was at Heroku because you know I would be saying no we got to go further no we got to go further no it's got to be better and Adam would be saying we got to ship it it's good enough we got to ship it it's good enough and so you know ultimately. I forced him, you know, without me, he would ship a lot more stuff, but it wouldn't be nearly as good. It wouldn't have been taken to the to the level that he's capable of taking it. Um, and without him, I would just sit around polishing things in a cave forever <laughs> and never ship them. Right. right. Um, I would have this shelf of the like, utopia of every designer. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And then you pull the curtain away and say, "Look what I polished right. over the last ten years." Over the last ten years, that's yeah. the problem, though, right? You never really end up pulling the curtain away. Right. Or by the time you do, it's not relevant anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, you need. So you those, need, you need, you need, you need those kind counterbalancing of forces. You also need, and, and on, the, on the second thing I said in terms of riding people kind of hard, it helps to have counterbalancing forces there too because, you know, sometimes, so Orion, our other partner, uh, he's one of these sort of big fish storytellers, like everything is an analogy, very creative, mad scientist. And he was often, and he reads people really well, and he was often able to translate my <laughs> feedback or, or, or translate my sort of objectives into the language of the person, the sort of mindset uh, right. of the person who's working on it, so that they, yeah. they really uh, could could grok it. Which is, you know, it's funny. That's that's a skill that I have, but I find that I can't simultaneously critique work and right. be careful with people's feelings. Right? Yeah, yeah. You go into uh, that hyper objective mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so you need you need help with that. And uh, and you know, the, the third thing I'll say is um, just around. I mean, there's sort of the old, the sort of cliched thing around, you know, A players get more A players, et cetera. But, you know, kind of in that vein, when you have people on the team who are capable of just incredibly high caliber work, it makes this a lot easier because you may have to push a little bit to get it, but everyone else sees that. And so instead of this, like, oh, you're asking for the impossible, like, this can't be done, this is frustrating, you kind of see this other thing being shipped and you're like, wow, okay, I can't really say, that it's not possible. It clearly these guys just did right, it, so right. I just need to get back to work. The bar you know? has been raised. That's right. And, and so, I also find that those kind of people they tend to be hungry for critical feedback. That rather than saying, rather than rejecting it or being offended by it, they're like desperate for criticism in some ways. Yeah, I mean, people who really, who really, the people who produce that kind of work, it's because they've been. Pushing their own bar forever, right? It's it's like uh, you know, it's like anything. It's like working out at the gym, right? The heavier you, you lift, the heavier you can lift, yep, right? And yep. it's the same thing with a quality bar. And so, people who are who are really of that caliber, they've been pushing themselves forever, and they won't feel satisfaction from their work unless they have completed something to their quality bar, and that that quality bar is always going up. Yep. So, the thing they ship today has to be done to their satisfaction, to a level of quality that's higher than they've ever done before. And that keeps going up every, every day, every, every project. Um, and the only way you get there is through true ruthless criticism, right? right. Um, self criticism. You'll find that people who are uh, of this quality mindset are very self critical, right? It's like you produce something and everyone in the world says it's the best thing ever. And they're like, yeah, I mean, it's okay, but like, this sucks about it, and this sucks about it. And I would have rather done this thing. I, mean, I had to ship it a little sooner than I wanted. Yep. Right. And that's a really common pattern. And you know, in the beginning, like anything with the team, the beginning really matters a lot, right? Like the, those those seeds of the culture, those seeds of the team. You know, you start with a person or two like that, and you know, it may go a little slower, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the things you produce, they just sort of stink of this 
quality, right? Like it's just wafting off of them and it attracts other people like that. You know, th those kinds of people want to work at a place that at its core respects that level of work, right? No nobody who has that kind of bar wants to go work someplace where they're, where they're told, yeah, 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 we got to ship it, it's good enough, stop working on it, right? right? Absolutely. Um, they want to be at a place where somebody says, you, your amazing work, it's not good enough, right? <laughs> um, you know, I find myself making this mistake all the time where, you know, the trade-off, it seems to me, to some extent, is between like, you know, authority or ownership is the trendy word, right? Against maybe this unified vision or this central sense of quality. And as you, you probably imagine, and as I think probably most CEOs of early stage companies are, like that's pretty much me in our company. And something that I see quite a lot is my having an internal dialogue of like, do I say to this team, no, this is bullshit. Like, <laughs> this is nowhere near good enough. There are these five like usability edges that I spot in five seconds of looking at this. Like, how can you even think about shipping this to our customers who are paying us lots of money? <laughs> you know, I have to bounce that against this notion of like, well, maybe the more I eat into their kind of ownership of that thing that they're trying to deliver, the less motivated they become and the more like, well, fuck this guy, they kind of think. You know, and it's less about being like popular and I feel like more about making sure that you have like a super motivated team. Did you encounter that much or do you think it was just fundamentally set up differently? Oh yeah, no, that's a, I mean, that's a constant battle, right? And it gets worse as you grow, right? Because you have more and more surface area, you have to have more teams, you have more fragmentation of ownership. Um, which generally is good, you know, allows you to decentralize decision making, allows you to move faster. But it becomes very difficult to maintain that that bar. And you know, to me also, uh, and this is talking more specifically about design as a, as, a, as one of the aspects of quality. Yeah. To me, one of the most important uh, sort of uh, aspects of design is cohesion, right? Consistency, cohesion, right? Continuity. And um, when you have different teams making decisions independently. About how a product looks or feels or works, it's very difficult to have cohesion. So even if you have three different teams who've produced fantastically designed products, if they're all slightly different but they're all sort of under the same product banner, that still is bad design in right. some ways. Right. Um, and so, what do you do about that? Um, so again, there isn't a right answer, but I'll, I'll tell you a few things that, that we've learned. I think the model where you hand somebody total ownership, you give them this whole pump up speech about total ownership over this area of the company, do whatever you want. And then they go to do something and you say, no, I'm, I forbid you from shipping this. Right? <laughs> that doesn't work very well, right? Because it's a, it's a fundamental violation of, of the ownership that you're, it makes ownership feel like a bullshit thing. Right. However, you, know, you also can't just be fine with it, right? If you care about quality. So to me, the balance that, that I've found works best is that you give feedback. Right, so it's not you can't ship this. It's I wouldn't ship it, and here's why. Mm, right, right. And so there's two parts to this. Let me back up. So the first thing is, in my view, the way we always did it was we wouldn't give ownership to a person for a team or a part of a product until they had already been through the crucible of, you know, feeling like something was good enough, being told it wasn't, and then sort of breaking through that barrier. Right, and you know. Just as a sort of tangent, there we found at Heroku there was a very, really clear pattern where people would come on board, and we 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 were very fortunate in that we sort of 
got going in a good mojo direction early. And I think part of that was that we really did care about quality and that attracted really high quality people. So we were going in a good direction with, with talent coming on board who were used to being the best on their on their team. And they would come to Heroku and they would go through this sort of this this sort of difficult emotional adjustment period. And they would come on board and they would feel like they were the worst. And they would be constantly told your stuff isn't good enough. And there would sort of be this valley of despair. And um, what was interesting was there was sort of a bifurcation there, it was an inflection point where some people would just eventually get frustrated and leave or you know, just sort of never overcome that that hump. But others would they'd sort of bottom out and then they would double down and then they would come back and they would finally get over that hump of quality. And uh, once they did, they would look at this thing where, you know, two months ago they said, this cannot possibly be done any better. And we said, you're wrong. And they didn't agree, but then they went back to the drawing board and eventually they built this thing that was dramatically better. And we said, oh my God, you did it, good job, let's ship it. And it was well received. And then they felt this really deep sense of satisfaction. Um, and I, that has been true, I've found in general, people always feel this deep sense of satisfaction when they ship something at a really high quality bar, no matter how much they disagreed with the process uh, that led to it. And so anyway, there's sort of this crucible you go through. And we would only put somebody in charge of something who had successfully been through that crucible. So now they were sort of on the same page, they cared, they knew what it took, right. like they pushed the, the the rock up the hill, they know how much energy it takes. And that's part of it. And I also you know, I'm using the language of put someone in charge, but really like I said, ownership has to be taken, not so much given. And um, but it's kind of the same thing in that in a culture that respects that kind of quality, that kind of um, effort, you really couldn't take ownership of something unless you had achieved that because people just wouldn't follow you. Right. Right. And so that's part of it. You have this sort of cultural background. Then the people who are running these things are those kinds of people. So that that's a big uh, part of it. Um, and then and then sort of step two is the way you manage that is you give them the real deal feedback and you leave you leave it with them. Right. You can ship it. You you have the ship button, not me. Right. right. That you have the ship button. You have the key. I don't have a veto. But I think your stuff is not good enough, and here's why, right? And you can do whatever you want. the 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 power that you do retain is that if they do ship things that shouldn't be shipped, whether it's once or many times, you have the power to replace them, basically, right? You have the power to to shift that ownership somewhere else. And in some organizations, that ownership will shift by itself because people will look at the quality of things being produced and they will not want to follow that person. Now that organizations that are a little bit more hierarchical or more sort of authority driven, that person will just not be in charge of that project anymore. Right. Um, but I think that's a that's sort of a that's sort of a balance, right? And and that the hard thing for you as a CEO or as a leader is you have to be okay with seeing some things ship that irk you. Oh yeah. Right. Now you don't have to be okay with it forever, but you have to be okay with it. You have to be tolerant of some of it as somebody gets their feet under them, learns, and you have to be. What you want is to see the trend going in the right direction, right? And for me, as a perfectionist, that's very, very, very difficult. I want everything that ships to be perfect. Yes. Um, and I see these couple of things, and I'm like, ah. But you know, the truth is, you're managing a lot of things. There's a lot of surface area. There's a lot of things that are shipping, and if things are generally of a really high quality and things are trending in the right direction, was is the most important thing. It's worth that investment. And uh, super interesting. The other thing that I think would be great to dig into a bit is the trade-offs that you mentioned, right? And and like you said, it always is a trade-off. You said just before we started this that that you kind of have like a framework of thinking about that, and that's something that you're big on. Can you kind of expand on that a bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to me, everything is a trade-off, right? Every decision that you make is a trade-off, right? And so, the the question is, 
if you don't think of things as a trade-off, then you don't really fully understand the decisions that you're making. When you choose one thing, you're trading off something else or maybe multiple things. And so, you know, uh, obviously in quality, this is true in general, for, with the quality discussion, you know, we talked about a couple of things that you're trading off and, and it, the question is how, how far are you willing to go in that direction, right? You know, for me, Let's take quality over quantity, which is sort of this like mantra, right? But you know, for me, it's it's much better to do fewer things and do them well, right? And everybody says that. Can people kind of say that and get it? But like to really internalize that, you have to think about okay. Imagine a a product that you're going to release, and you want it to be really good. There's this minimum set of functionality that obviously you have to have for the product to work. Well, how much of that are you willing to cut? Right. This is you've already cut from the scope of like all the cool things that were possible down to like what would be pretty good down to like the absolute bare minimum. How much of that are you willing to cut? Ten percent, fifty percent, eighty-five percent. Right? Can you ship a thing that barely does anything at all? It does maybe one thing, but it's perfect. See, for me, it, I find that most people have a really, really, really hard time accepting that. But I'm of the mindset. To me, this is related to uh, Paul Graham's uh, dig a deep, uh, you know, a deep but narrow hole rather than try to dig a, a wide hole. Right. Um, you know, y- y- if you if you drill drill deep but narrow, you're going to have just a tiny thing that's applicable to a tiny number of people, but they are really going to see that you care. Right. They're going to feel the craft. They're going to care about it, and they're going to expect that whatever you do next is going to be at that level. Right. And um, it becomes part of your brand. You know. Richard Branson defines brand in a way that I really like, which is effectively, to paraphrase, what you can expect from a company is its brand, right? And so when you do things to that level of quality, people expect that level of quality. And it's then very easy to roll out the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And people will stick with you and they will celebrate as you do those things, right? I mean, back to the back to the Apple example. I mean, I remember, I don't know, maybe it was in the 90s when they would, you know, roll out the new version of the desktop and they, Steve Jobs would spend like ten minutes on like the design of the handle, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it was like I miss those days. It was, I mean, and people people loved it. People loved it. They were like, yes, yeah. The handle is so much better now, you know. <laughs> and I remember these famous quotes from like Bill Gates and you know people on, on the other side of it who were like, what the fuck? It's a handle, Jesus, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but like that's that that totally works. Whereas if you deliver all the functionality that. You know, people want, but it's all kind of mediocre, or even just some of it's mediocre. That's your brand now. Your brand is like kind of mediocre, and you can add a bunch of stuff later, and you can even maybe fix the quality later. Although in reality, that never happens. But you, that's it, right? People, people are going to lose it. And so, when you have a product that's per, I mean, you can, everybody can think of that one product they got that maybe was like incredibly simple. Did one thing? Maybe it was a fucking carabiner. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah, it was just yeah. like one tool, one little piece of something, but it was just perfect. You told everybody about it. You know, people were like, "Which carabiner shot?" You're like, "This one. This is the one. It's yeah. got magnets. It's the, this one." Yeah. And I think that uh, I think that everything's like that. And so, how far are you willing to go? Right? How far are you willing to go? There's an exercise we do often where there's a couple different ways to do it uh, as a planning exercise. It's kind of fun to to make the list of things we're not doing. Right. And what we used to do at Heroku was we couldn't leave the room until we had listed ten large things that we weren't going to do that were just Unthinkable to not do. Like <laughs> we had to, like had to do it. Like had every like every customer wanted it. People were complaining about it. Everyone wanted to build it. It was like totally doable. It was super important. It was strategic. Whatever. Like just the things that you most if you if you if you're not super pained 
just super deeply pained by the things on the we're not doing it list, then you're not recognizing your trade-offs, right? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm also kind of of the mindset, uh, the, the, the sort of sect of people who believe that when you set goals, you know, that a goal isn't a goal unless you're willing to, to trade things off for it. And you should be able to name what those things are, mm-hmm. right? And so I think everything is a trade-off like that. You know, you can, for, for the engineers in the audience, you can go to the cap theorem, right? Uh, or or, or the, 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 the equivalent of that is sort of the old quality, speed, or cost, right? right. Pick two, yep. right? Everything is a trade-off. And so it's it's often a good exercise. We actually just did a little uh, quarterly uh, planning thing for Heavybit, and we set some areas of sort of values, or, you know, that we want to focus on. And we we sort of stated the value, but then we also went through and stated what the trade offs were. Mm-hmm. Right? If we want to achieve this value, what are the things that that we're not going to have? Mm-hmm. Right? Things that you want that mm-hmm. we're not going to have. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I think that's a really important way to to think about things, and it's an important tool. Right? And it also forces everyone in the company when when they have asks, they've got to pay. Right? Like anybody, whether you're the CEO or or anybody, if you want if you want something, you have to pay for it with these trade offs. Right? So when I demand quality, I'm paying for it with with budget, with time, with you know, with feelings, hurt feelings, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah. So I think I think I think everything's a trade-off. And I guess the final question that that I'm kind of still fascinated in is is something that seems to be happening, right? And I think that you and I both obviously agree in it. And this is in some ways like part of the founding thesis of Heavybit is that business applications, however we want to define those. Are becoming more design conscious and and less shit basically, and so you know that <laughs> the counter example that you used earlier was like the thing that does everything and all of the things are shit. <laughs> That's like most business software, you know, and, and like most of the stuff that we pay today to do our fundamental business processes, be it you know operations or be it you know development. I mean, like shout out to AWS, but guys. Your interface is outrageously horrible, right? Like all of like it does. It seems like this is a kind of wave that's perhaps emanating from certain areas. Hopefully, heavy bit several other places, I guess as well. How do you think about that? You know, if someone's listening who's like, "Yeah, James, this is all great. You know, if you can afford to do it, but I have, you know, hundred k MRR. I've got these users to please, and I've got this roadmap to hit." You know, how do you think about the trade-off there, where you've already trained the customers, or the customers always already expect a basic level of shittiness? You know, that it, to put it another way, so many people have come in to the sales CRM space and said, "We're like Salesforce, but well designed." None of them are Salesforce. <laughs> you know, and so that's something that is feels like a hard argument to counter for me. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So I mean, there's a few things in there. Firstly, I'd say that you know most of the people who are I mean, might be listening are, are probably starting companies now or or recently, and most of them, you know, get a little nauseous when they hear the word enterprise, right? Because for most of us, that conjures these pieces of software that you're talking about that are just, you know, you, you open up this piece of software and it just feels like every customer request that was ever made was said yes to, right? Like, I mean, just anything that anybody ever asked. For even if it was an edge case, they said yes and they put it in there, and so you just have this sprawling mayhem of chaos, right? And um, 
<laughs> I'm going to go on a tangent here uh, into one of my design principles. I, I used to give uh, talks on this, and it was a big thing we did at Heroku. I, so, in addition to thinking everything is a trade-off, sort of related to that, I think everything is a spectrum, right? So, I talk about almost everything as being a spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's easier to understand things if you think about the extreme ends of the spectrum. Agreed. Um, and so, one of the design spectrums to me is we used to call it machete design. So on, on one end of the spectrum is a machete, and on the other end of the spectrum is a Swiss Army knife. Okay, and there's some really interesting <laughs> things about this. You know, the Swiss Army knife is the equivalent of enterprise software, right? It's right. like there's a lot of different things you might need to do. Let's make sure you got a tool in there for everything, right? One time somebody asked for a, you know, you know, things that you don't need, a whittler, you know. So there's one in there, right? Yep. There's one in there today. Yep. You know, there's a toothpick in there. I mean, Whittler you know, 2000. Jesus, yep. it's you know. The problem is you have all these tools in there, but they're kind of mediocre, right? Like the screwdriver in a Swiss Army knife is kind of a terrible screwdriver, right? And there's no discoverability, and there's no ability to enhance these tools or to use them really well, right? This is this is not the kind of tool that you carry around like your precious prized katana that you know is your friend. This is a tool that like you throw in your pocket, you know it's mediocre, like it's gonna might maybe come in handy sometimes, but like if you're in a life and death situation, you're gonna be Pretty bummed that that's the tool that you have, right? Versus the other extreme, the machete. The thing about a machete, it's a single-purpose tool, right? Sort of of the Unix philosophy, small, small, sharp tools, right? Uh, tools that have single purposes that can be strung together with other things. You know, a machete is very intuitive, right? You don't need a user manual. You don't need to like know what each tool is or where to find it. You know, there's often a manual with with a Swiss Army knife. Like, a, there's like a thing you open and tells you what the tools are. <laughs> it's crazy. A machete, it's like it's pretty straightforward. There's a sharp side. There's a handle, right? right it's right. weighted in a way that you almost are forced to, to like swing it in a particular way. And um, the interesting thing about that that's a little deeper is that your ability grows over time with a machete, right? You, you, you can unlock features, you can become an advanced user of machete right. by becoming familiar with the tool, right? right? As you become familiar with it, because it's a simple tool and it's well made, it becomes sort of an extension of your arm, right? So maybe you're starting out, you're slashing brush or whatever, but you know, over time you could, you know, you could use it to shave, you could use it to make a sandwich, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. You could use the tip as a screwdriver, you could use it as a hammer, right? As you become really intimately familiar with this tool, and if it's well made and robust, you can use it for a lot of different things. And what's great about that is that it's discoverable, right? This is sort of directly related to discoverable interfaces. You can, you can unlock more functionality as you get deeper and deeper into the product. Whereas the Swiss Army Knife, you're just kind of stuck with this set of mediocre things that you were given. And to me, the equivalent is like, um, <laughs> I think of Microsoft Excel, is sort of the classic thing in in my head, which you know I, I think spreadsheets are like one of the you know most important tools that have been you know created in in recent years. But but uh, you know you open Microsoft Excel and you got like the classic toolbar, right? It's just like fifty fucking buttons on there. Yep. You don't know what half of them do, right? I mean, it's crazy. And the the, the friction for becoming a user in the beginning is incredibly high, right? Because you pop in there and it's just like you just want before you can even enter a number, it's like. You know, pivot tables and like just all this crazy shit, and so it, it has that feel of like all the things you might want to do are just like stuck there in your face. Yeah. And so anyway, that's sort of a design principle that is, I think, related to what you're talking about, um, and and sort of sort of uh, stepping adjacent to that. There's this philosophy today, you know, very prevalent in Silicon Valley right now is sort of sort of the the lean startup, the iterative development. You know, listening to the customers, getting feedback. You know, small release cycles, fast release cycles. Not that I disagree with any of those things, and a lot of them are sort of a business extension of agile 
software development, right? Where we learned that waterfall is bad and we need user, user uh, we basically can't foresee the future. So we need to just build things in small chunks and see what happens. Right. But I think that maybe we've gone too far. I'm a bit of a contrarian on this, but you know, I don't believe that user feedback is valuable <laughs> in a lot of cases. I think that you want to observe users using your product. But I think that the things they say they want I think there's little signal in that. You know, users tend to ask for the thing that's right, you know, right in front of them, the next one foot in front of the other. Uh, very, very iterative, very incremental. No user is ever going to ask you for this like fundamentally innovative thing, right? No user is going to ask you to like remove that feature entirely or like change the universe such that that set right. of problems don't exist anymore because right. they can't conceive of that world. That's right, and it's your job to conceive of that for them. And so if you get too caught up in this like focus group cycle, it's a real problem. And that's, in my mind, part of what leads to what you're talking about, which is this sense of like customers need these features, and the sales guys said that they can close this deal if we add this thing. And you know, obviously that's a counterbalancing force, like I talked about before. You have external deadlines, you have MRR targets, you have whatever, but you, you can't le- lose track of the other side of that, that force, which is that you have to fundamentally try to simplify the problem. You have to fundamentally try to build a machete and not a Swiss Army knife. And you, know, you have to have faith you know, that, that when you do that, you will have a, a following of customers that is more valuable than the quantity of customers that you may be able to get, but you're going to have high churn on. It's like these Kickstarters. It's, it's like the, this thing with these Kickstarters, it's like, they promise like all these incredible features that like have not even been invented yet. Yeah. Some of which may turn out to like not even be possible. And they they feel compelled to make these promises so they can get enough sales. I meet with these guys all the time and I just don't understand, you know, if you sell fewer, right? If you sell 200 items, don't, you know, it's sort of like Paul Graham's uh, do things that don't scale, right? Don't get hard tooling. Don't go to China and like figure out how to get a like, good unit cost. Just Build them by hand. Yeah, yeah. Make it really fucking expensive. Yeah. They have like negative margins on them. Yeah. But get them to those 200 people, get that feedback, right? But they always instead, it's like, oh, can we sell 5,000 units? Can we sell 10,000 units? Can we sell 100,000 units? Great, we sold 100,000 units. Now we can afford to like spin up a whole supply chain, right? <laughs> and now it's like fucking two years later before we ship these things. And as soon as we ship them, we find out that the design's wrong and we need to change it. Yeah. But it's like, it's impossible to get these guys not to do it that way. It's a very, very strong fear, right? That people won't buy something that doesn't have these things that, that they want. But I think the truth is that people respond to quality. Even when it's missing a bunch of things that they that they wanted, if the things that are there are quality, it's much easier to add things later than to refine something, to simplify it, to make it high quality. So I don't know. I, get that. I don't know. I didn't really answer your question. Directly, no, that's but. absolutely perfect, and I can't think of a better place to end the interview. Thank you very much, James. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Zero to One. Find me on Twitter at Fredsters underscore S. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, I would go into their library and check out some of the recordings of their speaker series program, where amazing founders get into real detail about how they went from zero to one.